Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance to join the forum or if you for a potential listing on the clinical athlete directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hennick and I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport and I'm joined by Jared Maynard who is the clinical athlete continuing education director and coordinator and a physiotherapist himself, a king physiotherapy and foot clinic in Ontario, Canada. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. How's your day been? Day has been awesome. Wicked. We're wicked. I don't think I've ever said that. Really? Wicked. I don't believe that at all. Wicked. You must have said that no, at I, least I, once. Uh, this is the first time. I'm going to start saying it. That sounds that's good. A, that's a bloody lie. Just, oh, my God. I'm not going there. <laughs> we are also joined by a super special guest, second-year physical therapy student at George Fox University and clinical athlete forum student member, Taylor Eckel. Taylor, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Quinn. Um, thanks for having me. It's awesome to have you. We're super excited to get a, a student's perspective on things. It's always it's helpful, not just for the students who listen to the show, all two of them, or I'm just kind of, you know, doing some probabilities there, but also <laughs> clinicians to kind of get a, a glimpse of what, you know, cause the students, honestly, the students have the best perspective because they're getting the most up to date. We, you know, we can argue with that, but it is the most up to date because our outdated information that we learned was even more outdated than, than the information that you're learning. So it, it's, it's just so good to have you on. Can you tell our six listeners what has led to your current professional interests and ultimately PT school? Well, there might only be five listeners today because I don't know if I'm going to want to hear myself talk. (laughs) (laughs) I I completely get that. I hate hearing myself talk. No, I was one of those kids in high school who just was constantly injured in sports. I played soccer and basketball. And so... Um, freshman, sophomore, and junior years landed me in PT for various ailments. And by the end of sophomore year, I was pretty set on becoming a PT. And I was fortunate to have a PT who really pushed me hard in rehab um, and helped me get a lot stronger. I was someone who did not strength train and really should have. Um, And I just really enjoyed the people aspect of it. Uh, prior to deciding on PT, I had my heart set on being a canine orthopedic surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was already pretty interested in orthopedics, but wasn't sold on spending my days operating on dogs. Um, <laughs> but but um, just being able to integrate the things that I love all in one with the science and helping others, which is super cliche. Um But I think what really has kept me involved in it is just realizing the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. And that keeps me really motivated and invested to keep growing. So that's kind of how I landed where I am. I was an aide for four years before I went to PT school. Oh, wow. Well, three years, actually. So, yeah, you definitely knew. What were some of the injuries that you had to deal with? Um, ankle sprain, MCL sprain, and then I had a kind of wonky uh, patellar dislocation where I tore off some cartilage, had this nice little chunk floating around in my knee, uh, tore my medial retinaculum. So they repaired that. And then two years ago, I had something similar, a cartilage defect on my right patella that they eventually ended up scoping because I just, I couldn't manage it on my own. And so far, so good. Maybe it was placebo or no better than placebo i don't know <laughs> i was i knew you were gonna right when you said scope i could hear the tone in your voice change <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's amazing well that's, that's so what was funny with that one was for eight months i was convinced i was like this is a psychosocial thing it must be and finally after having three different pts look at my knee somebody was like okay 
just get the damn MRI. <laughs> let's, yeah, I mean, let's not forget of the the bio part of the biopsychosocial. It is it. it you <laughs> know, we integrate these things. So that's that's great. So the the format of the show is is Q and A, like we've done in the past. But we've got lots of questions that are uh, kind of based on Taylor's experience as a student, and I think it'll be really really helpful for anybody listening. So quick disclaimer, some of the questions we receive are regarding specific injuries and it just becomes impossible to answer some of those. So we'd, we'd highly recommend you get it checked out and, and head over to the directory for a clinical athlete provider in your area, or you can email us at info@clinicalathlete.com and we can try to point you in the right direction. And for other more general injury questions, we, we always do our best, but you know, still recommend you, you get it checked out if you're currently injured. And lastly, we always get way more questions that we can answer during any one show. So if we don't get to yours, we'll, uh, we may get to it on a future show. So Taylor, as our special guest, we always will let you start the show off. What you got? Okay. Well, I think the one that jumped out to me is kind of a good segue into some of the other questions was, I think you raised this, one of you guys, was how can current clinicians better support current students? Um, and I've been really grateful through the, the clinicians I've connected with, mostly through the clinical athlete directory. Um, shout out the guys like Neville Chu and Ryan Bogus who have really just made themselves available to answer questions and let me come shadow. And that is just so invaluable. Or even you know, sending me articles that they're reading and being, hey, what do you think about this? That it just helps me keep my head in the game when I'm buried in things like neuro and pharmacology that I don't love, um, just to remind me that there's more out there and more to look forward to, but also modeling the type of practice that stays invested and stays curious and doesn't get stuck in a rut. Um, and then I think the other thing I've encountered sometimes is PTs, even fairly new grads, are occasionally a little condescending or have kind of a chip on their shoulder. And they're like, oh, well, when you're in clinic, X, Y, and Z. And I, I mean, I don't say this to them, but I'm like, you realize my first job at a PT clinic was in 2008. Like I've literally been in this industry 10 years. You didn't even know you wanted to be a PT 10 years ago. So like, don't give me that when you get into clinic. (laughs) (laughs) So just, yeah, just don't make, don't make assumptions, you know, whether that is positive or negative. Maybe somebody really doesn't know something. Don't assume that they know it. And then, you know, that goes both ways. So it goes back to ego. I think we've talked about that on every single show. Is like, and it's student, student, and clinician. As a clinician, don't. It's like you said, Taylor. I completely agree with you. I think some clinicians have a chip on their shoulder, and they're they're teaching in a way that really they just want the person, the student, to know how smart they are. And you know, it's like a power play almost. So that's the biggest thing. Is like if you're going to be a teacher, actually want to teach. And if you have a student that asks questions, that's not a personal attack on your knowledge as a professional. Um, so I, I love that. And do you shadow? So yeah, shout out to Neville and, and Ryan. Do you shadow other clinicians on the weekends or like on days that you don't have classes? How does that work? What do you, how do you do that? Um, well, over the summer I'm okay. off, which is really nice. So I've gotten to shadow them a good bit and then some other guys in Portland, Scott Morrison. Um, oh, Scott's who, awesome. Yeah. He also pointed out that I have a really bad quad index. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that. There's that. <laughs> <laughs> but I also am a little bit notorious for not always going to class in PT school. Um, <laughs> and so I think I skipped at least a third of my uh, statistics class last spring semester. Which one? Which one? Statistics. Oh, come on. No, I think it's super important, but the professor was awful and he wasn't from the department. And I was taking evidence-based practice at the same time. And that professor was awesome and would get us up to speed on everything. So I was like, I'm not going to sit here here for multiple hours a week to have some probably very smart person talk to me in a way that is not helpful at all. So I would just peace out and go shadow or peace out and go study something else. <laughs> that's awesome. I just love the fact that you characterize it by saying you peaced out. Like, that's just great. That's, it's oh, a, my it's, God, they give you so much crap. But I'm like, you guys, you're going to sit there and play, like, some, the, the guys play this golf game. I don't know what it is. They sit on their computers and play golf. So in I'm class. Like, 
yeah. I may as well go shadow. <laughs> this is awesome. But I feel I feel obligated to say we don't encourage you to skip class <laughs> or anybody listening. Um, the, the, but, the views of this in this yeah. in this program are not necessarily that of clinical athlete arts participants. <laughs> Honorable cause, though. Honorable cause. Right. Like I, I wouldn't. And part of it depends on your school's culture and things like that. Like I was very open with some of my main professors that I'm skipping this class to go shadow, and one of them gave me a fist bump. So shout <laughs> out to Dr. J. <laughs> well, do you have all your uh, class? content online also like all the lecture notes and and anything like that like if you skip a class um, <laughs> i can't no, believe talking not about necessarily. this like okay. they'll put their powerpoints up so if they're a professor that reads off their powerpoints essentially but if they're not then oh, you gotta really get notes from somebody or you might be screwed i got you well you can pay it <laughs> yeah, forward by learning what you uh what you learned that day in shadowing you can pay it forward to whoever helps you with your statistics notes Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, there you go. How do you find the time to balance the extra learning that you do? Like, how do you do you do you schedule pretty abruptly? Because you they don't know if people know this, but Taylor's Instagram is pretty freaking awesome. She makes some very thought provoking posts and she she it's just really, really good stuff that you put out. How do you find the time? Because you've got to you've got to read research to be able to make those posts. This is this is not just uh, take a video of a. Uh, <laughs> split squad and post it up there. Oh, really good for glute activation. No, you're like, you're like, you're like writing blogs on your Instagram posts. How do you find the time to do that? Or I guess what better question is if you have fellow classmates that say, I don't have the time to read extra research or listen to podcasts or go on whatever other than what I do in school, how do you do it? Um, how do they have time to do anything that they do? Like, I don't watch much TV. Lots of people watch lots of TV. I probably, unless I'm going to sit down and watch an entire football game, I probably max out at one to two hours of TV a week. So that right there gives me a ton of time that you maybe other people are choosing to spend in other ways. And part of it too is, I don't want this to sound flippant, but I am very strategic about what I choose to study. And I think I'm pretty good at triaging information as I take it in. And I know some students, not just in my program, but even other people I've talked to, get really bogged down in trying to memorize all the little details. And I don't. And you can be a good test taker and know your shit and not memorize every little thing. Like um, we were talking before the show started about mentorship and I was talking about first year student I worked with a little bit and she was trying to memorize all the parameters for joint mobilizations for like every single body part and she was trying to memorize well if it's a knee grade one this if it's a grade two this for the knee if it's for the hip this. I was like okay if they're going to ask you on the practical you know, how long would you do this you either tell them if it's for pain relief I'm going to do it like x and if it's for range of motion with air quotes, I'm going to do it for Y. Boom. That's it. Doesn't matter which joint. And then, it, you know, grade one, two is pain relief. Grade three, four, air quotes, range of motion. <laughs> and she was floored. Like, that had never occurred to her. I'm like, we just covered in 30 seconds what would have taken hours and hours to memorize. So I think a lot of it comes down to, like, even with orthopedic conditions, you don't have to memorize the signs and symptoms of every single condition. You need to understand what you know, what will the patient say in their subjective if it's OA? What will they say in their subjective if it's a capacity issue? What will they say in their subjective if there's something, some sort of contractile thing going on which kind of plays into the capacity? You know, or like maybe you know, you need to know a couple specific things like ACL. You know, full thickness rotator cuff tear. But beyond that, don't don't memorize every little thing. I certainly don't. I get my grades are fine. But do you have a 4.0? No. Well, you're out. Do you, <laughs> I think? Do you think that this is a stupid question because I think the answer is going to be obviously yes. But your experience in the clinic leading up to physical therapy school, you were an aide for three years. How helpful do you think it was? 
to actually see these presentations in real life. Cause when now, when you get a case on a piece of paper, you actually know what that looks like in a real life human. What potentially, I don't know your classmates background, but other classmates, if not her, when they read a case on a piece of paper, all they see are letters on a piece of paper and they don't actually know what that looks like. And so I think it's harder for them to not try to memorize all of the details because they don't know that you don't actually need all of those details in a clinical situation. So in, with, and now you do more shadowing. So how helpful was that experience and the continued shadowing that you do for that? Yeah, I think that's a really fair point. So I came into PT school with almost 5,000 hours um, over the course of, I guess it was like nine years. Oh. Um, yeah. Is it that long? Yeah. 2008? 2008 to 2017. So Dang. yeah. Um. And then I think I picked up like another 30 my first year of PT school, 30 to 40. And somebody asked me the other day, like, oh, like, I'm not like you. I'm not smart. I have to study. I was like, no, it's not that I'm super smart. I think it's that I've been so invested in this for so long that some things are just obvious. So, but I think that also should be motivating to people that if they are really invested in learning and finding things that interest them and pursuing those things outside of school, that can make school easier too. You're putting reps in. Is it not yeah. just putting reps in? Like anything else, totally. literally anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you guys, well, did you, both of you go straight into PT school from undergrad? I had a year off just because I didn't, I, I applied out of undergrad, but didn't get in anywhere. So I worked also as a, well, as a kinesiologist before that title became protected and the college was a, was a thing. Um, but, but, I think similar to what you said, Taylor, like I found that really, really helpful. It less, hmm, slightly less so in terms of having a representation of what given conditions might look like in a person. But I did find it helpful, especially when it came to um, exercise prescription and modification and that sort of thing. And also in terms of hmm, we had to do our... Um, electrophysical agents course and i could give the spiel for ultrasound and ifc really well i don't i give a much different spiel Let's these days it. no no i've sworn, <laughs> yeah. sworn that stuff off when... i forget which modality it was for but um somebody made up a mnemonic for the contraindications and it was dpt fuc labs like labs <laughs> beautiful yeah, I, I didn't go right into PT school. I worked as a strength conditioning coach for about a year and a half beforehand. I, I definitely thought it gave me a leg up in just also the communication aspect of things, like knowing how to talk to a human. It, it helps if you talk to humans. Um, now I don't, you know, people, some physical therapy students have the opportunity to do the three plus three programs that are a new thing now. And our program actually had that where you go into PT school as a senior in undergrad and it saves you a year. And I, if, listen, if I had to do it over again, it's like save me a year of, of time and also save a whole lot of money. I would probably try to do that, but I also wouldn't go back. And if I, if I had the chance because of the experience that I had going in, I, I definitely think it helped. And we had, I could tell the difference between my classmates who worked in the field in some capacity. A lot of them were athletic trainers for a year or two before coming into PT school. And it was just, they had they had a, an advantage. There was just no doubt about it. Um, is it my turn? I'll ask a question. It's your turn. Uh oh, I lost it. Say something funny while I. Wait oh, it, I got it. Made it drop. Okay, <laughs> I, I just gotta have to bring this one up, Taylor, because I just have to. So Scott Morrison asks, "Why is Taylor's quad index so mediocre?" But you gave us your injury history, right? Yeah. Was was the weak quad? The one that you more recently in the, the two years ago surgery? No, the oh, weak yeah. quad was the one that had surgery in 2008. Um, but the stronger quad is the quad that I rehabbed myself. Hey, um, shout out. And it, I think the <laughs> other maybe piece of a puzzle is that in 2008, my surgeon told me to never squat ever again. Not that I squatted previously, other than maybe like, 10 pound dumbbell squats when I was rehabbing and, you know, an unrelated MCL strain or sprain. But, um, 
I didn't squat at all or do lunges from 2008 to like 2016. It's, you know, we could laugh about that, but that's actually, that's actually a travesty and it's actually not funny. How old were you in 2008? 16, 17. Okay. So you're a 16, 17 year old girl just out of a surgery. That was a pretty gnarly, I mean, that was a reconstruction. They had to put your medial retinaculum back together. Yeah. I lost so much quad that I lost two inches off the circumference of my leg. And for context at the time I was five, seven, 115 pounds. And so then here's, here you are 16, 17 years old. A physician is telling you to never squat again. You're like, damn right. You're going to listen because what, (laughs) right. And then, but then what does that do? It just sets you up down the line to have, you know, to have these issues. Like, how do you get back two inches of your muscle? That takes a lot of work. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I didn't forever until like the past couple of years. Jeez Louise. I'll follow that up with, well, so now, you know, hopefully maybe you should email that physician and say, Hey, listen, here's some evidence on on the importance of muscle mass for injury risk reduction and also here's some here's some data and research on the nocebo effect and pain science you should probably read this as well <laughs> i, uh, okay. I kind of have half a mind to do that <laughs> <laughs> i think that you would if anybody would do it you would do it yeah yeah um no, okay so that's my cop out of an answer for scott all right all right it's not your fault not your fault i'll ask a real question um, what did you do? Hold on. Sorry. What topic do you ha- have you met the most resistance with when discussing with your peers? We could also include your professors as well, but just be, you know, tread lightly there. But what's a topic in school that seems to be always a point of contention between you and your colleagues that, that you talk about? If that makes sense. Yeah, that's a tough one for me because my program is very progressive. Good. Um, yeah, so I'm really grateful for that. So I think, I think sometimes maybe it's more of the two things I see. One is a gap in language coming me coming from the perspective of strength and conditioning, and you, know, my professors for the most part are very pro loading, very pro making sensible choices in rehab. So like I got into a discussion in cardio palm about different levels of intensity of training. And when I said high intensity training for stroke patients, the professor kind of saw red and started talking about orange theory. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to reel that back in and talk about how intensity is relative to the individual. And if we have data that, you know, the average max capacity of a person post CBA is three and a half mets. 80% of their max capacity is going to be like really, really so like three and a half mets is like ADLs. So maybe they're doing an example I gave was like elevated sit to stands fast, not orange theory, Which, right, not <laughs> orange theory. Also. And then he started talking about hit training. I was like, orange theory isn't high intensity interval training. It's just this like, try and make yourself feel miserable and tell you you're going to burn lots of fat and prey on women's insecurities training is what it is. Like it's not actual interval training. So like, there's just this whole mismatch in the words we're using and the fact that they have actual meaning and there is data behind them. I run into that or I'll say things about strength training and a couple of times professors have kind of dismissed it as like gym science. Like, no, we're talking about the same things. We're just using different words. And my words are probably more standardized than yours in this particular instance. Um, other than that, I'd say I think classmates are pretty open to discussion and bouncing ideas around. Like We had this really lively discussion outside of class recently about closed chain versus open chain post-op ACL. And mm. I feel like people brought good ideas to the table and we're like, open to discussion and i really appreciate that about my classmates that's awesome what about on the internet i mean you're pretty you're obviously pretty active on that what's your experience been in general um i think the biggest two things i get pushed back on are posture which somehow people 
always miss the point that, yeah, maybe you do need to modify load by avoiding certain postures if it's provocative for a period of time. That that message seems to be lost on a lot of people. Um, and then the other thing, interestingly enough, is issues of motor control and anything remotely neuro-related. I think people maybe don't have an appreciation for how vast our nervous system is and how much it, you, know, you have this interplay between incoming input and interneurons and descending modulation. Who knows what's going to make it even up to the brain, let alone come to your awareness, let alone provoke a particular output. And people get hung up on this idea that, oh, if I do this input because of this fancy sounding scientific term, I'm always going to get this output. And it's that simple. I'm like, no, you just made shit up. Like, don't <laughs> give me that. And then they make out of to discussing it. Like, I'm trying to say, let's respect the fact that this is really multifactorial. And I think the same could be said of pain. Yeah. What was what was the last instance of of you trying to have a productive discussion relating to motor control that that went sideways? Um, I'm trying to remember which post it was on Instagram, but this guy kept like DMing me about it, and I finally just stopped replying to him because then he told me I had too much of a student mentality. What does that mean? Regurgitating what I've been told. I was like. <laughs> this conversation is over. Um, I didn't say that. I just didn't reply. I think it was about, oh, the, our tight muscles really weak mm. was the, the title of the post that I yes. And I was basically saying, yeah, strengthening muscles that feel tight often feels good. That doesn't mean we can say that they're weak was the basic premise of my post. And he was going off about the law of reciprocal inhibition or something along those lines. Oh boy. That's actually been, well, okay. I can, I can give you a paper that that has been debunked in like right. well, 2012. I, I that yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, I have too much of a student mindset. <laughs> um, it, it always comes back to people wanting black and whites. It seems like you, especially like as a, as a student, I think you're, I think you're an anomaly and I think your experience helped, but in general, you know, we want black and whites. And as you're learning something, it's just so much easier to digest it. If it's, it's brought to you as this is good. This is bad. This is on off. Yes. No, those types of things. Tight muscle equals weak muscle. Okay. Got it. Anterior pelvic tilt. Bad. Um, the, you know, posture, good posture, bad posture makes it real easy, right? But it, it always comes back to thinking and understanding that, that there is nuance with it. And it sounds like you actually have a really, really good program and, and great classmates to, to bounce ideas off of those. And I think that's fantastic. Um, I think we hit that question pretty good. Jared, do you want to hit the next one? For sure. I also want to say that you can keep your nuance. I'll take my uh, easy to, to digest check marks and red X's on Instagram. Thank you very much. After, <laughs> listen, after about 6 p.m., I can't go on social media because <laughs> I'll say something real stupid. I, I just can't look at my explore page after a certain point. <laughs> Decision fatigue is a real thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Next question. So, Drove Singh wants to know um, what you think would be good steps post undergrad to take um, if someone's wanting to move towards PT school. And the second part of the question is what should uh, what should people do and not do for the application, as well as for mentally preparing oneself for the interview, as well as school itself. The third part is what do you do if you don't get in? Well, I think we've kind of hit on. A big part of that is get some relevant experience, whether that's as an aide, whether that's as a strength and conditioning coach, personal trainer. I did the latter as well um, as being an aide. But I'd also say don't base your impression of physical therapy just on the experience you get as an aide because there's so much more out there and there's so much variance between settings. Um, I've worked some really crappy places 
and I've worked some really awesome places as an aide to just kind of take it all with a grain of salt and it's all just information coming in that maybe, you know, maybe you don't have a way to categorize it yet, but it's something you can draw on later. Um, so that's also what you can do if you don't get in is get a job, get some experience. Um, just some things to consider with the application. Definitely have somebody or even multiple somebody's read your essay, you know, make sure that grammar is really good. Make sure everything is on point and concise and organized and look at the school's mission statement. If you're doing PTCAS, you can't customize every single essay, but maybe go look at the APTA core values or something along those lines and then look at your resume and what you're interested in and see where the overlap is and really highlight those things. Um, but don't just talk about like things that you like. Talk about what you've done. Like make it. You know, we talk about making goals actionable, and this is more reflective of what what have you already taken action on to show that you would be a good PT. And that I think is also true when it comes to time to interview. I mean, you can Google typical interview questions and kind of mentally prep for that. But you know, be yourself. Know the school, like if you haven't read the website, every single page of the school's website before you go to the school, you're probably going to say something dumb. Don't do that. Um, and also, like, give yourself some license to ask questions, even in the interview. I remember I probably asked like five different questions of the panel that was interviewing me. Mm -hmm. And I think that does really help the dynamic feel less like I was sitting in front of a firing squad and more like, if these are people who will potentially be my mentors and yeah. you want to end up somewhere where you'll be, you know, yeah, you want to get your license, but ideally you'll also you know, be building a network and learning from people you respect. It's really cool that you brought that last point up because I was thinking about that just recently in relation to, to job applications. Um, used to be the case where going through the application process, you know, you'd inevitably get to the the interviewer asking, "Do you have any questions for us, um, or for me, or, or whatever?" And I might have, you know, I think I stole my dad's stock question of, "Well, in six months, how will you know that you made the right decision?" Which is, eh, whatever. But but recently, I was thinking about um, how how could I ensure that if I end up getting offered the job and I end up taking it, that that's where I I want to end up and where I would fit in. You know, not just in terms of getting along with personalities, but what what is this place about, whether it's uh, a place of work or whether it's a school, and does that jive with what I'm about? And, and can I see this being a really good fit? So having the courage to ask some questions, <clears throat> you know, not like just, just good, honest, clarifying questions or those sorts of things, I think probably from the perspective of the interviewer helps them to recognize that you, you give a damn about where you're going to end up and and, and maybe I, I can't speak to that but but maybe that helps uh act as, a, as another differentiating factor between you and the other people who are interviewing for that yeah absolutely and i think to knowing the different schools target different demographics so the average age of my class when we started i think we estimated it was about 26 mm. and george fox really values non-traditional students um, other schools really value your kind of pre-med straight out of undergrad. And if you poke around the website and ask questions of the admissions counselor, that'll be pretty evident pretty quickly. Or even ask if you can connect to a current student. I love that. I love the idea of getting to know the program. It sounds obvious, but it's not even like, yeah, you don't want to say something stupid, but I think it may, it puts you in a really, really positive light if you actually know the backgrounds of the people who are interviewing you, like if you, if you can comment or ask questions specifically on their research inquiries or, you know, their past work, it really just shows that you care and that shows that you've actually put time in. Um, and then the, the question, the, the third question, you know, what to do if you don't get in, my thing is you, obviously you have to reappraise things. You have to decide if, if you are able to take another year and try again, because that's ultimately it's another year of your life that you're pushing back a little bit. Um, so you, you know, that's, that's kind of on you to figure out if, if you can swing that. But if, if you decide that you can, I mean, you just got to put your head down and, and try it again. I mean, the second time around, I would think that your, 
resume is going to be even more robust. You're going to have more <laughs> shadowing hours under your belt. You're going to have more experience. I think even the fact that you're trying again, I don't think that's a black mark on your resume. I think that's a fact that you want it. Like, oh, this, this person's oh, yeah. back again. You know what I mean? They must, they must really yeah. care. And look at what they did in the year after they put all this <laughs> extra work in there. You can see the difference from year to year. So my advice is I don't think you would need to do anything differently necessarily. Just I, I think you can get feedback or you can, you can probably leave an interview knowing somewhat where you kind of screwed up maybe you weren't maybe you were a little nervous you weren't making eye contact you didn't know anything about the program like you can shore those things up um and just get back at it what do you guys think yeah i definitely agree with that and i especially the getting feedback whether that's you follow up with the people who interviewed you or even some admissions counselors can kind of review your application with you but also like don't take it too personally because if you think most programs interview what like 150 to 200 people for 20 to 80 spots, depending on the program. Like really what's the difference between, you know, the 40th person and the 41st person. It's a judgment call. And I think of, there's a guy in my class who is probably the smartest person in our class, has a lot of clinical experience. Awesome. Like he will be a fabulous clinician. It took him three tries to get in. Mm-hmm. And like, yes. if there was one person in my class that I'd be like, I would send a family member to, he would be like one of three people that would come to mind. So, Definitely. you know, it's not necessarily a reflection of you. It might be. And if it is, you know, be honest with yourself, but it also might not be. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I could just speak to my personal experience of not getting in the first time. I applied to four, four to five schools in Ontario. Uh, didn't get in anywhere, and and a good chunk of that was due to one chemistry mark that brought the whole GPA down enough. Um, so that was rough. Um, realizing that okay, this wasn't my, this wasn't how I, I planned this would go. Um, but here, you know, what can what can I do now? So I ended up just applying to see if I could work as a as a kin, um, just to well to make some money for one, but then also to just get some more experience. And I knew that. Come next application period, the credits that they looked at or used to calculate the GPA would be better and wouldn't include that crappy mark. It's a better chance. And then, you know, in the meantime, it's a way to pad um, or add to what I could include in my um, responses in, a, in an interview or, or in my essay, personal submission. And it worked out. Uh, people sometimes ask me, oh, why'd you go to Queens? The answer was simple. It's the only place that said yes. But I only needed one. And, you know, it worked out, worked out fine. Now, that's, that's a segue into another question I want to ask you, because when we had Steph Allen on here, I'm pretty sure we talked about your question, which was about a five-year plan. So, I guess two-parter. One, has your, I don't know, uh, your journey so far in terms of PT education, has this played out similarly to how you might have thought it would if we went back in time a few years? And then the second part is, what are your what are your thoughts or plans for the next five or so years? Yeah, that's a good question. Sometimes it's hard to like look back and pick a spot in time and be like, oh, from this point, because I've been pursuing this for so long. Um, but I think for the most part, it has quite sorry. <laughs> background it hasn't quite played out the way I expected in that I think in high school I assumed I would go straight into PT but for a variety of reasons I chose not to which sometimes I regret because I would have graduated a while ago Uh, but sometimes I am also really grateful for that experience so that definitely resonates I know you guys talked about things not going the way you expect um, I've also considered that kind of done the dance of residency versus no residency and haven't reached a firm decision on that, but leaning probably not, at least in the short term. Um, but I know where I want to end up long term and I want to be teaching and still be practicing. So whether that will mean a PhD down the road is possible and definitely something I'm very interested in, whether that means a residency or not residency and just taking the OCS, SCS, something along those lines. But it's kind of hard to know right now as a second year 
how do I want to get, you know, 20 years from now, I know I want to be a teacher, but I don't really know exactly where I want to end up um, two years from now. Yeah. I think that's good. Keep things flexible. Yeah, I want to be treating patients. I want to be learning. I want to be somewhere where I'll be challenged and have you know mentors really accessible. Have you started thinking about where you're going to work? Or are you just like not even? Yeah. Oh yeah. Good. Yeah, I've had I've had some conversations with people about that specifically, and I I think I know where I'll land. See what That's networking wicked. does for you, kids. You be yeah. proactive. You you got. I think I think I'm up to seven job offers. Seven. Oh. You lucky dog. <laughs> I mean, great, mostly though. unofficial, but still. That's it's great though. Start. I rescind yeah. mine. That make it six. <laughs> <laughs> you wish you would have jumped on that bandwagon. <laughs> hey, Southern <laughs> California. <laughs> I don't we, know, I'm pretty. I'm pretty attached to the the mountains up here. I hear you. I hear you. North the northwest is beautiful. Um, the rain though, man. We it rains. It's it so rains. Hot. It rained like last week. Everybody was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Does it rain in Canada, Jared? <laughs> no, it's always snow and ice. Oh, there you go. Frozen rain. Yeah, yeah. Flaked rain. But every snowflake <laughs> is unique and beautiful. Like me. All right. Uh, here's a good question. Actually, no, it's it's Taylor's turn. Oh. Yeah. Um, I think it was Jordan Tangston asked what to look for in ACL prevention programs. Um, just interesting side note. One of my classmates went to undergrad with Jordan. Talk about in Guam. Talk wow. about a small world. That's wow. awesome. Yeah. And then they didn't know they knew like that they both knew me until one of them mentioned like a PT student that they follow on Instagram. And anyway, they're like, oh, wait, you know her? Oh, what? So that was like kind of a cool moment. But um, first of all, I would say, like, you guys probably would agree with this, try and use the language risk reduction as opposed to injury prevention, which risk reduction doesn't sound as sexy, but oh, well. More syllables and more work to say. That's what I hate that about it. That was rarely sexy. But anyway, uh, I think just some big ticket items that we know is strength training matters, um, energy system development matters. And that I think is where we have an opportunity to get sports specific, not in how the movements look, but in terms of the demands that we're placing on the system. So energy system development for soccer is going to be really different than basketball versus volleyball. Soccer's going to have a lot more in aerobic oh, capacity. Is everybody okay? Yeah, I don't know what my roommate's doing. My roommate. <laughs> um, yeah, so just energy system development, general strength training, and then allowing movement to emerge as opposed to trying to micromanage Oh, OMG, oh, your knees keep them when you squat. So we're going to tell you, think about pushing your knees out whenever you land from a jump. I'm sorry, that's not how sports work. Um, sports are very reactionary. Sports are not internally focused. If they are, you're going to be screwed. Um, so I think just understanding that, I, I think from what I read, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, the focus on the coordination training really doesn't make that much of a difference. It's more continued participation in the strength training that does. And then return to sport all about the quads and give it time. Yeah. My understanding is the uh, Tim Hewitt might, might speak differently, but the, the motor control thing is, is definitely nebulous. Um, it, there's a whole lot more robust literature on the process of strength training. And I think people, that's the the hang up too. It's like, well, how strong do I need to be? That's not really the point. And if that were the case and no powerlifter would ever get injured because they're strong as shit, you know, it's like you have to be strong enough for the task. There's something about the process of strength training that is, that is protective. It, and it's a similar process with energy development. It's just, 
it's it's the ability to handle stress and so the process of of training your tissues in that way to handle more stress over time and and against you know progressive load and and impulse if if we're talking about return to sport we're trying to put some impulse into it um then th- there's just there's something to that and then you use sport itself to then use those attributes that you develop in the gym so the that pendulum swing of sport specificity training other than just doing the sport is it's tough it's tough to wrap you know well should i train my knee in valgus the way that i'm going to do it on the soccer field you could you could also just go play soccer um and, and do the drills and just get and then get really brutally strong as strong as you can um in those in those positions in the in the weight room so i think you i mean i think you hit it on the head i also don't just don't think we have great means of injury risk reduction and certainly not of prevention of, of really anything. And then you said something else there. You said something about the quads, which is weird because don't you know, Taylor, that it's really all about the hip. Any, any knee problem is a hip problem. Everyone knows that. Um, another example of the pendulum swinging way too far and we can see it. I know the question is about prevention, but we can see it in literature of post-op rehab in ACL, how important the quad index is, um, and, and how predictive it is of, of re-injury if we send them out too soon with a quad index that's pretty low. Um, so Taylor, well, you could, also, you could speak on that firsthand with your quad index. <laughs> yeah. Um, I might not forgive Scott for, <laughs> that I'm exposed also to just keeping in mind that just because something is predictive of injury doesn't mean it's causative. So yes, there's a correlation that you know if you land what a 30 inch box depth jump landing with knee valgus is predictive of higher risk of injury. Teaching somebody to pass the test is not inoculating them against injury, and I think you see that a lot post-op with the hop testing. Clinicians drill it and drill it and drill it. It's like no, that's not the point. The point isn't to make them good at sticking a landing with a hip strategy. Because that's actually putting me in a more vulnerable position than letting them go into a lot of flexion and valgus. You're not going to tear your ACL at 50 degrees of knee flexion with that, with a valgus moment. You're going to tear your ACL with a little valgus moment at you know five degrees of knee flexion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in regards to movement, I would say that's the cue that I, if anything, that I can help somebody move differently to try to try to reduce the risk of them tearing an ACL, which happens in like a hundredth of a second is try to land with your knee bent a little bit more. And then you'll probably be fine because most ACL tears happen at 27 degrees or less of knee flexion. Mm -hmm. And it happens very, very quickly. Um, but what do you have to have to land in a deeper squat position? You got to have quads. So yeah, you gotta, yeah, you gotta be strong. Um, so it really just comes back to that. And before I forget, I'm sorry, Jared, I'm cutting you off is I just read an article or or didn't read it, but it was reminded of me today as I was working through a project is a systematic review on strength training. And it's just for reference for people. It's titled the effectiveness of exercise interventions to prevent sports injuries. They use that word, a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. The lead author is Lowerson and that's from 2000. It's, it's recent. Uh, or a semi, but it was 2014. But uh, the conclusion was strength training can help to reduce the risk of injury. So if you want some evidence to back up our, your claim, there's a good one. All right, I'm done. This is where you should put in a plug for the forum. Be like, I'm going to post this on the Clinical Athlete Forum. And I'm going to post this article on the Clinical Athlete Forum. <laughs> That's great, Ali. And then we can discuss it. Thanks, Taylor. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are that it sounds like more jacked, mo better. That's yeah. that's all I got for that. Don't for tell sure. a sixteen-year-old girl to never squat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What do we think? To one another? Yeah. Let's do. Whose turn is it? It's my turn. Nah. 
Oh, how can PTs or any professionals, I guess, better support you as a student, both in person and via social media? Did we talk about that a little bit? Did we? Did I already ask it? We might have a little bit, yeah. Fuck. Did I already ask it, Jared? Did I ask that as that question? It it sounds familiar, but we also recorded a podcast episode an hour ago with the same question, so I don't know. <laughs> don't don't <laughs> spill the beans like that. Um, okay, probably you're probably right. Because you, you were over two on the alleys tonight. Oh man, you kind of did. Um, oh yeah, damn it. You kind of did talk about it with clinicians helping you to shadow and and being you know good with learning. Okay, fine. I'll pick another one. Hmm. Well, the other one's about ACL. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, okay. Well, how Charlie, uh, who, who is also a student physical therapist, asks, how do you assess and treat sciatic nerve tension? Is this even a thing? <laughs> so from student to student, how do you guys learn nerve tension in general? Like the, just the narrative behind that and then intervention it was just sort of presented like it's a horrible way to lead off it was just sort of presented like (laughs) don't mind me um i think our professors didn't make that big of a deal about it it was you know you need to bias it to the peroneal nerve you do it this way if you want to bias it to the tibial nerve but there wasn't really any narrative surrounding it it was more of a as here's an assessment you can use, and then here's how you do nerve glides to treat it. But I would say just zooming out, are we talking about symptoms versus findings, right? Because you can do a neural tension test on somebody and it might be positive, but I haven't seen any data and I did a cursory search of PubMed on, you know, specificity versus sensitivity of it. And, you know, even if it is say a, a very sensitive test doesn't mean anything if it is positive so i don't know i'm not super hung up on it one way or another now if somebody's having symptoms where they're near end range and they're getting that nervy sensation yeah you'll want to rule out the spine and then i'm all i'm fine with giving somebody nerve glides because it's keeping the locus of control on the patient but i think i would present it in a very casual way like okay, here's this technique. If it feels better and relieves your symptoms, it's an option that you can do throughout the day. And if it isn't working for you, we'll move on to something else. I don't know. That's kind of my response. I also would add to this this whole idea of neural tension. I know I've seen a study a while back. This was probably three years ago that I read it. It's a PT I worked with gave it to me that was talking about excursion of the median nerve in a cadaver sliding versus tensioning techniques and okay so we've seen that but that still doesn't really give us much about a hypothesis of do nerves get quote-unquote entrapped do they need to be freed up the whole premise is very much unverifiable in my mind so well that would be the same as taking a cadaver muscle and pulling on it and saying, oh, look, the muscle pulls a little bit, the muscle stretches a little bit, so stretching must then be the intervention that I'll use on this real-life human. So, but clearly know, it's okay if we pull on the IT band to show people that it's strong and the foam roller won't do anything. Totally. I could hang you by your, <laughs> I could hang you by your IT band and it, that shit wouldn't stretch. I, they, yeah. No, the nerve gliding is interesting. It's almost as if we make it we make nerve tension its own separate category or yes, like it sucks. I've experienced symptoms that I would consider nervy in nature, but the concepts of rehab don't necessarily change. It's still like, I'm going to figure out what the trigger movements that are pissing this off are. And I'm going to obviously modify the dosage of that because clearly I'm surpassing my tolerable dose. So there's that. And if I'm not, soul it up. I'm going to figure out ways that I can work into that range of motion a little bit and just kind of test the waters, which to me is actually what nerve gliding kind of is in the first place. It's graded exposure because I don't, you know, if some, if a nerve glide 
is a provocative test, a provocative assessment, and then you immediately turn around and now NerveGlad is your treatment, that is a form of graded exposure. That's not necessarily, you know, you're, you're trying to work into their symptoms a little bit. So we do that with anything. We do that with tendinopathy and, and other types of stuff with back pain, with deadlift and just kind of see what you tolerate. So I don't think it has to be so regimented the way it's taught. Like you mentioned, oh, if you want to bias the peroneal nerve, you do it this way, that way. Um, these types of things, you can certainly use it as kind of an outcome measure in the beginning. Like, oh, look, this pissed you off when I did this on our initial session. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, oh, now it doesn't hurt. That's awesome. You know, you can almost use it as kind of like some buy-in. Uh, but, you know, David Butler, if, if anybody's ever watched David Butler, who's, who's, um, a pretty prominent pain, pain, a neurodynamics guy who's kind of, the, the, the man when it comes to these neural glides and these types of things. But if you watch him talk about it to him, neural glides have to have context to movement. He's actually got a lot of YouTube videos where he's doing these, what look like really weird dances, but they're like, he calls them nerve glides and they're like, he makes it fun. He like makes it a dance, you know? And it's like the person, the patient who is in currently in pain is like laughing while they're doing it, but it's also still exercise. You'll get the same nerve excursion doing it that way as you will doing it for three sets of 10. Real, you know, real boring laying on your table. So, um, I, like I, I'm, I'm kind of with you. Like I, I've prescribed what people would consider nerve glides, but it's really just kind of like, Oh, this, this hurts. Well, let's see if we can work into it a little bit and desensitize that. And in the meantime, we'll address other factors that are probably more of a contributor because I'm confident that mother nature is going to calm this thing down naturally. So a lot of it comes down to reframing as well. Jared, yeah. what are your I mean, thoughts? I, uh, basically the same as, as both of you. Um, I, I'm a fan of using uh, nerve glides, just, just try to get a foot in the door. Um, you know, and I can think of a few patients offhand who came in with some, some nerve type, or nervy symptoms that were radiating down the back of the leg into the foot. Um, I I think some of them probably had some other provocative movements uh, with their, their back, things like that. We, we couldn't do a whole lot and they were pretty, yeah, they were pretty acute, pretty pissed off. So, um, you know, they had a positive slump, positive straight leg raise. So, okay, cool. I mean, you can, you can tolerate this much of the slump and we're not going to include the back movement. Awesome. You know, let's do that. And then I just explained it as a way to try to get things moving a little bit, maybe settle things down. And again, just to steal your both of your words, just to to use it for now as a way to get the body used or, or uh, to do what was appropriate, to, to load them in the way that they could handle now with the expectation that more would come that would, you know, be different, you know, and probably more meaningful, look more like the stuff they they actually care about doing ultimately. I think it can also be a good way to get buy-in or introduce the concept that maybe sometimes progress is more movement in the same level of symptoms, not necessarily the same level of movement and less symptoms. Because a lot of times I've seen patients do nerve glide and their symptoms aren't changing, but their leg goes from not moving much to moving almost full range in 15, 20 reps. Yeah. And they can feel like, see like, whoa, my leg's moving. Yeah. And yeah, it's like still, you know, three or five or whatever out of 10, if you were to ask, I don't know, I like, try not to ask, but they see and feel right away. Oh, maybe more movement with the same amount of symptoms is progress. Yeah. And I love jumping on that opportunity. And I think I probably end up getting really, being really annoying. Some of my patients be like, oh, that's, you know, it's, it's the same pain, but it's, it's more work relative to that sort of objective improvement. Um, and, you know, I think that's a good jump off point to maybe reframe the idea of when it comes to their meaningful activities, you know, maybe we don't have to necessarily be pain free. It'd be, be great. Obviously, it's fine to want that. But I'm stealing this directly from Greg Lehman. I took his course a couple weekends ago. Uh, he was saying he likes to ask, you know, what would you be doing? right now if you weren't in pain and then you know how would you feel if we got you back to that thing or those things and you still had pain would that be enough or what 
what else would constitute a win other than being pain free? Um, you know, and if it's appropriate, you can talk about how, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have to say that not everyone becomes pain free, but maybe phrase it in a way that, again, just, just absence of pain may not be necessary for, for someone to perceive that they're getting better, that they're where they want to be. Maybe it is, depends on the person, how they're viewing it. But if you can sort of have that conversation early on, it probably makes things easier um, throughout the whole rehab process. I think that's the key is setting the expectation out front, right? If you, if you don't, you got somebody coming in with five years of, of chronic back pain and they're like, well, my goal is to be pain free. They're like, oh yeah, okay. I, you know, Sweet. six, six to eight weeks. I think that's certainly reasonable. I have six to eight weeks go by and guess what? They're still in pain because it's been five years. Now what do you do? It's so, so much harder. And now to say, well, oh, but yeah, you're not in pain anymore or you're still in pain, but we've done so much more. You're able to, that doesn't resonate with them as much because they had this false mm-hmm. belief. So yeah, I think that's, that's so important. And, and I find myself having that discussion, the whole, but you've increased your function and you can ask them too. Could you have even gotten here the first, by the first day or said, Oh no, I would have been at like a 10, 11 out of 10 pain. I was like, well, there you go. And then you can also take them down to the range of motion that they initially had the same level of pain. And usually that's a little bit less sensitized. So if they have more, you know, I'm, we'll just steal numbers here. I know we're all like, ah, to the visual analog scale or numeric pain rating scale. But let's say it was their straight leg raise was 70 degrees at a 6 out of 10. And now they're a 90 degrees at a 6 out of 10. But 70 degrees is like a 2. They're like, oh, I barely feel that. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, do you remember this is as far as you could go last time and it didn't feel great? They're like, oh, yeah, you're right. So you can still kind of have that that desensitization moment. And if they are hopefully reframing their belief on pain knowing that they're just not broken like they have to change their working definition of what pain is throughout the process and that takes time you just you're not going to flip somebody's world upside down in in one night like that so you mean um, not at all sometimes maybe not well maybe not at all they just they just become okay with the experience they have a different opinion of of the experience that alone Mm -hmm. You know, if we could somehow measure that, like what is your perception of the experience of pain now compared to before, like some type of qualitative data on that would be interesting too. Um, Have you heard of the promise outcome measures? No. It's uh, uh, it's developed by NIH and they use it in the clinic at school. And they have different domains from self-efficacy to physical function, but one of their domains is pain interference. So it tries to measure, it's one of the uh, computer algorithm type things. The patient takes it on an iPad, so the questions that they get are based on their answers to previous questions. Mm. And it's really easy to look at in clinic because 50 is the mean for their age or like of the general population. And then I think it's five or 10 is a standard deviation. So you can easily see like, well, they're way outside or they're pretty close and then just track their progress. It takes, you know, like a minute or two minutes to administer. But I think it's been fairly well validated from what I understand. But I'm looking at it now. So it's a, it's a computer program. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'll check that out there. It's the, yeah, it's promise without an E patient reported outcomes yeah. measurement information system. Like you said, um, cool. And it's on the mm-hmm. NIH website. I'll check that out. Thanks, Taylor. I guess I will too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, the outcome measures are important too. I, I always try to change because I'm kind of old school. I still have people like fill out pieces of paper sometimes with the questions. But if it's like the fear avoidance questionnaire i don't i take the title of the thing off the mm. paper or it's like the yeah. the kinesiophobia scale <laughs> like what's that that sounds horrible i'm not scared <laughs> of spiders like, don't, don't worry about Wait. that <laughs> <laughs> um let's see here uh i think okay i think that was all the questions uh, Taylor, so. where where can people find out more about you? Where can they connect with you? 
Um, Instagram is the best option. It is, I'm just at taylor.eckel, E-C-K-E-L. And I'm sure you guys will link that below or whatever. <laughs> well, we weren't going to, but now we will. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really the only place on social media that I'm active. I have a Twitter account and I never remember to look at it. What about Facebook? I'm on there, but oh, yeah. I don't post much. Facebook is stuff. so dead now. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Right, Instagram. Right? Instagram, Instagram, yeah, and Twitter. Um, and Clinical Athlete Forum. Yeah, I can mention you in there. Make my voice known there very often, but well, know. maybe this will be a push. I wish you would. <laughs> maybe that's how I have time to do everything I do. But. There you go. I hear you. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being on the show. It was awesome. It's always yeah. great to, to have a student's perspective, and yours in particular is 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 very enlightening. I learned a few things on this show. Um, and I appreciate that. So thanks for being on. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk with you guys. We will talk. Well, now five listeners. Let's see. We'll talk to everyone soon. Thanks, Taylor. <laughs>